The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth, David Hume and Immanuel Kant. The century of the 1700s saw many great thinkers who have left a lasting impact on modern philosophy and science and psychology. But there were two who would, between them, define the nature of science, especially psychology. And they are, of course, David Hume and Immanuel Kant. David Hume was born on April 26, 1711, in Edinburgh, Scotland. His father died the following year and left the estate to his eldest son, John. John ensured that young David would receive a good Presbyterian upbringing and sent him, at the age of 12, to the University of Edinburgh. Three years later, David Hume left the University of Edinburgh to become a philosopher. His family suggested that he tried law, and he did try it, but found that, as he put it, it made him sick. So he went off to travel for a few years in England and France. It was at a Jesuit college in France that David Hume wrote A Treatise of Human Nature in two parts, in which he later published anonymously in London in 1739. David Hume was the ultimate skeptic, convincingly reducing matter, mind, religion, and science to a matter of sense impressions and memories. First, he agreed with Bishop Berkeley that matter, or the existence of a world beyond our perceptions, is an unsupportable concept. Further, cause and effect were likewise unsupportable. While we may see sequences of events, we can never see the necessity that determinism requires. And further still, David Hume's investigations led him to dismiss the existence of a unifying mind within us. What we call mind is just a collection of mental perceptions. And finally, without mind, there can be no free will. I will let David Hume speak for himself. Pay attention to some really good arguments here presented in Hume's own words. All ideas are copies of impressions. It is impossible for us to think of anything which we have not antecedently felt by our senses. When we entertain any suspicion in a philosophical term, we need but inquire from what impression is that supposed idea derived. If it be not possible to assign any, this will serve to confirm our suspicion that it is employed without meaning. Some philosophers found much of their reasonings on the distinction of substance and quality. I would fain ask them whether the idea of substance be derived from impressions of sensations or impressions of reflection. Does it arrive from an impression? Point it out to us, that we may know its nature and qualities. 
But if you cannot point out any such impression, you may be certain you are mistaken when you imagine you have any such idea. The idea of substance is nothing but a collection of ideas and qualities, united by the imagination and given a particular name by which we are able to recall that collection. The particular qualities which form a substance are commonly referred to as an unknown something in which they are supposed to inhere. This is a fiction. And so with these ideas of David Hume, we have no matter, no substance which makes up the world. Now Hume continues. There are some philosophers, such as Bishop Berkeley, who imagine we are at every moment intimately conscious of what we call our self, that we feel its existence and its continuance in existence, and we are certain of its identity and simplicity. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pleasure or pain, color or sound. I never catch myself distinct from some such perception. I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind that they are nothing but a bundle or collection of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement. Our eyes cannot turn in their sockets without varying their perceptions. Our thoughts are still more variable, and our other senses and powers contribute to this change. The mind, or self, is a kind of theater where perceptions make their appearances, pass, repass, glide away, and mingle in an infinite variety. But there is no simplicity, no one simple thing present or pervading this multiplicity, no identity pervading this process of change. Whatever natural inclination we may have to imagine that there is. The comparison of the theater must not mislead us. It persists while the actors come and go. Whereas only the successive perceptions constitute the mind. As memory alone acquaints us with the continuance and extent of a succession of perceptions, it is to be considered, on that account chiefly, as the source of personal identity. Had we no memory, we should never have had any notion of that succession of perceptions which constitutes our self or person. But having once acquired this notion from the operation of memory, we can extend the same beyond our memory and come to include times which we have entirely forgotten. And so arises the fiction of person and personal identity. And so with these words of David Hume, we have no mind. And now Hume continues. There is no idea in metaphysics more obscure or uncertain than necessary connection between cause and effect. We shall try to fix the precise meaning of this terms by producing the impression from what is copied. 
When we look at external objects and consider the operation of causes, we are never able in a single instance to discover a necessary connection. Any quality which binds the effect to the cause and renders one a necessary consequence of the other. We find only that the effect does, in fact, follow the cause. The impact of one billiard ball upon another is followed by the motion of the second. There is here contiguity of time and space, but nothing to suggest necessary connection. Why do we imagine a necessary connection? From observing many constant conjunctions. But what is there in a number of instances which is absent from a single instant? Only this. After a repetition of similar instances, the mind is carried by habit, upon the appearance of the cause, to expect the effect. This connection, which we feel in the mind, this customary and habitual transition of the imagination from cause to effect, is the impression from which we form the idea of necessary connection. There is nothing further in the case. And so with these words of David Hume, it is out with cause and effect. But again, Hume continues, this time on free will. The most irregular and unexpected resolutions of men may be accounted for by those who know every particular circumstance of their character and situation. A genial person, contrary to expectation, may give a peevish answer but he has a toothache, or has not dined. Even when, as sometimes happens, an action cannot be accounted for, do we not put it down to our ignorance of relevant details? Thus, it appears that the conjunction between the motive and action is as regular and uniform as between cause and effect in any part of nature. In both cases, constant conjunction and inference from one to the other. What David Hume is telling us here is that free will is only our ignorance of cause and effect, and that cause and effect is an illusion. So, free will is likewise an illusion. And of course, Hume continues. In all reasonings from experience, then, there is a step taken by the mind that the future resembles the past, which is not supported by any argument. Nevertheless, we take this step. There must, therefore, be some other principle than rational or demonstrative argument. This principle is custom. What, then, is the conclusion of the whole matter? A simple one, though it must be confessed, pretty remote from the common theories of philosophy. All belief concerning matters of fact or real existence is derived merely from some object present to the memory or the senses, and a customary conjunction between that and some other object. Having found, in many instances, that two kinds of objects have been conjoined, say flame and heat, the mind is carried by custom to expect the same in the future. This 
is the whole operation of the mind in all our conclusions concerning matters of fact and existence. Now with these words of David Hume, we can say goodbye to science. And so Hume concludes, If we take in hand any volume, of divinity or metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental or probable reasoning concerning matter of fact? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. I am at first frightened and confounded with that forlorn solitude in which I am placed by my philosophy, and fancy myself some strange uncouth monster, utterly abandoned and disconsolate. Fain would I run into the crowd for shelter and warmth. I call upon others to join me, but no one will hearken to me. Everyone keeps at a distance and dreads that storm which beats upon me from every side. I have exposed myself to the enmity of all metaphysicians, logicians, mathematicians, and theologians. Can I wonder at the insults I must suffer? I have declared my disapprobation of their systems. Can I be surprised if they should express a hatred of my ideas and my person? When I look about me, I foresee on every hand dispute, contradiction, anger, calumny, and detraction. When I turn my eye inward, I find only doubt and ignorance. Every step I take is with hesitation. Every new reflection makes me dread an error and absurdity in my reasoning. In 1739, David Hume returned to Edinburgh, where he added a third part to his treatise on human nature. This time, his topic was morality. Hume suggested that morality comes from sympathy, which is an instinct for association with others. He goes on to say that it is emotions that move us, not reason, and in this he presages Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism by defining virtue as, quote, every quality of the mind which is useful or agreeable to the person himself or others, end quote. Even beauty is based on pleasure and pain, and love is based on our desire to reproduce. In this we find shades of Sigmund Freud. What little attention this third part received was highly negative. At this point in his life, Hume went through several minor political positions, and he gained a great deal of weight, something unusual among philosophers. Then, in 1748, he published An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, followed, in 1751, by An Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. These were essentially a rewrite of the treatise. In it, he concluded a new essay, Of Miracles, wherein he portrays some of Christianity's most basic beliefs as nothing but superstition. He continued on that same subject with Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, in which he compared Christianity, Deism, 
and atheism. Among other things, he suggested that the world that we know, including ourselves, is the result of eons of nature's experiments. His friends urged Hume not to publish it. They published it for him posthumously. No pun intended. Posthumously. In 1752, Hume wrote political discourses. Although he liked egalitarianism, roughly communism, and democracy, he felt that both were too idealistic. Hume's political discourses influenced Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism. In 1754, Hume published the first volume of The History of England, a book admired by such notables as Voltaire and Edward Gibbon, the author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. In 1763, Hume went to Paris, where he soon became the talk of the town and was especially popular at the salons of the great aristocratic women of France, who apparently took a liking to his grand body as well as his great mind. Several years later, he brought the then nearly insane Rousseau to England, which turned out to be a disagreeable adventure for both of them. Hume died on August 25th, 1776, of ulcerative colitis. His friends found the great atheist to be polite, pleasant, and even cheerful to the end. Immanuel Kant was born on April 22, 1724, in Königsberg, Prussia, which is now Kaliningrad, Russia. He was of Scottish descent and had a pietistic upbringing and education. Pietism is a form of Protestantism, similar to Methodism, in other words, very conservative. Young Immanuel went to the University of Königsberg where he received his Ph.D. He taught as a private docent, which is a private teacher or tutor who is paid by his students. This meant a poor life, living in boarding houses, and bachelorhood. Immanuel Kant began with an interest in science, including physics, astronomy, geology, and biology. In fact, he introduced the nebular hypothesis, suggesting that originally swirling gases condensed into the sun and the planets, basically what we understand to be the reality today. He also reintroduces Lucretius's idea of evolution of plant and animal life. In 1781, Immanuel Kant published The Critique of Pure Reason. A critique means a critical or careful analysis. And pure reason means reason which leads to knowledge that doesn't require experiential proof, what is also called a priori or beforehand knowledge. Kant said that he had been, quote, awakened from his dogmatic slumbers by reading the work of David Hume, 
This is frequently understood to mean that he was outraged. Actually, he said that he had been dogmatically accepting the traditional ideas about reason, and David Hume enlightened him. However, it is also true that Hume challenged him, in a sense, to rescue such concepts as cause and effect, which Kant felt were essential to the existence of science. Kant took as his life's task saving the universe from Hume's pervasive skepticism. First, Kant makes a distinction between knowledge that is a posteriori, or after the fact, and a priori knowledge, or knowledge which comes beforehand. Here's the quote. It is a question worth investigating whether there exists any knowledge independent of experience and all sense impressions. Such knowledge is called a priori, and is distinguished from an a posteriori knowledge which has its sources in experience. That there is a genuine a priori knowledge that we can advance independent of all experience is shown by the brilliant example of mathematics. Although all of our knowledge begins with experience, it does not follow that it arises entirely from experience. For it is quite possible that our empirical knowledge is a compound of that which we receive through impressions and that which our own faculty of knowledge, incited by impressions, supplies from itself. A supplement to impressions which we do not distinguish from that raw material, i.e. impressions, until long practice has roused our attention and rendered us capable of separating one from the other. Well, with these words of Immanuel Kant, we might be brought to ask, what then are these a priori faculties of our minds? The first stage of mind's operation on experience is the transcendental aesthetic, which states that all sense experience is synthesized through the concepts of time and space. And here Kant continues. Space does not represent any property of things in themselves, nor does it represent them in their relation to one another. Space is nothing but the form of all appearances of outer sense. It is the subjective condition of sensibility under which alone outer perception is possible for us. Since the capacity to be affected by objects must precede all perception of these objects, it can readily be understood how the form of all appearances, such as space, can be given prior to all perceptions, and so exist in the mind a priori. And how, as pure intuition, in which all objects must be determined, it can contain, prior to all experience, principles which determine the relations of these objects. It is, therefore, solely from the human standpoint that we can speak of space, of extended things. If we depart from the subjective, the representation of space stands for nothing whatsoever. Time is a purely subjective condition of our human perception, and in itself, apart from the subject, is nothing. What we are maintaining is the empirical reality of time, its objective validity of all objects which allow of ever being given to our senses. 
Since our perception is always sensible, i.e. by the senses, no object can ever be given to us in experience which does not conform to the condition of time. On the other hand, we deny to time any claim to absolute reality. That is to say, we deny that it belongs to things absolutely, as their condition or property independently of any reference to the form of our perception. Properties that belong to things in themselves can never be given to us through the senses. This, then, is what constitutes the ideality of time. So, with these words of Kant, we see that time and space are necessary to perception, even though they themselves cannot be perceived apart from the events within them. The next step is the transcendental analytic, which says that the mind applies certain categories of thought to ideas. Without these categories, Kant says, we would not be able to think at all, and Hume couldn't have come up with his arguments. Hume, for example, felt that cause and effect were not objectively real. Kant says he's right, that cause and effect are a priori, they exist in the mind. Here then are the four qualities that exist as part of the transcendental analytic. Number one, quantity, an idea of unity or plurality or totality. Number two is quality, reality or negation or limitation. Number three is relation, substance and accidents, cause and effect, reciprocity between active and passive. And number four, modality, possible, impossible, existence, non-existence, necessity, contingency. So once again, the four categories are quantity, quality, relation, and modality. Finally comes the transcendental dialectic. Kant believed that the mind seeks complete knowledge, but the mind is limited to dealing with phenomena, appearances only. The mind cannot reach to the noumena, the thing in itself. Phenomena are all that you have, but the phenomena are not real. Noumena are real, but you can't have them. So, to discover the real world, we try to construct it. Unfortunately, we err by trying to use our categories, our logic, which is designed for the phenomena, and we try to use those categories on the ultimate reality of the noumena. And so, we end up with contradictions that are irreconcilable. Regarding cause and effect and free will, Kant says this, If, however, we may legitimately take an object in two senses, namely as a phenomena and a thing in itself, and if the principle of causality applies to things only as phenomena and not as noumena, then we can, without any contradiction, think one and the same thing when phenomenal as necessarily conforming to the principle of causality and so far not free, and yet in itself not subject to that principle and therefore free. Suppose morality necessarily presupposed freedom of the will, 
while speculative reason had proved that such freedom cannot even be thought. In such case, freedom, and with it morality, would have to make room for the mechanical interpretation of nature. But our critique has revealed our inevitable ignorance of things in themselves that has limited our knowledge to the mere phenomena. So, as morality requires only that freedom should not entail a contradiction, there is no reason why freedom would be denied to will, considered as a thing in itself, merely because it must be denied to it as a phenomenon. Ultimately, Kant found that the existence of God, the soul, and ultimate reality is not something that can be proven, because proof is based upon phenomenon and the categories. Instead, God, the soul, reality are heuristic. That is, we believe in these things because they are useful to us. In saving science and religion from Hume, Kant proved that they had to be taken on faith. Scholars and churchmen on all sides of the issues criticized the critique, which ironically guaranteed its success. Unlike other authors of the time, Immanuel Kant had no censorship problems to worry about, because Frederick the Great, a brilliant man himself, ruled Prussia at the time. Unfortunately for Kant and for many others, Frederick the Great died in 1786. Now let me offer a brief digression about Frederick the Great. He was the king of Prussia, including much of Germany as well, and he was, besides a consummate leader and politician, an accomplished philosopher and a passionate amateur musician. He corresponded with Voltaire and Rousseau, and Bach wrote a musical offering for Frederick the Great, based on a melody that the king had challenged him with. Frederick the Great also wrote a great many number of books, including A History of My Times and The Anti-Machiavelli. In 1788, two years after the death of Frederick the Great, Immanuel Kant wrote The Critique of Practical Reason, a follow-up to his Critique of Pure Reason. Practical Reason refers to the making of moral decisions. In this book, Kant argues that everyone has a conscience, a moral law within their souls, not unlike the categories from the critique of pure reason. This moral law he calls the categorical imperative, which is often phrased in one of two ways. The first way to phrase the categorical imperative is a variation on the golden rule. Whatever you do, Consider what kind of world this would be if everyone else did the same. The second way of thinking about the categorical imperative is a little deeper. You should treat all people, including yourself, only as ends, never as means to an end. Never use people, as we might say today. In order for human beings to have morality, Immanuel Kant believed that we first needed free will. If you can't make choices, how can you be held responsible? And if you are not responsible for anything that you do, like an animal or a robot or a zombie, 
then anything that you do can be referred to as neither good nor bad. Also, Kant felt that we needed the idea of immortality, the idea that we live on beyond this present life. Since justice rarely happens within our lifetimes, we need a life after death to take care of that. And in order for eternal life to exist, or free will, or good and bad at all, we need to believe in God. Now notice that Kant does not say, first, God exists, therefore. What he's actually saying is that, although we can never prove the existence of God, or of immortality, or of free will, or of good and bad, we must act as if God and they existed. Religious thinkers of the time did not care for this way of thinking at all. Immanuel Kant wrote a great deal more. In 1790, he wrote The Critique of Judgment, regarding judgments of beauty. He notes that our sense of beauty is based upon feeling, not upon reason. We seem to see the harmony, the power, the miraculousness of some things. It is as if God so arranged those things. In 1793, when Hobbes was 69 years old, he published Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. Here, he argues that human beings are born with the potential for both good and bad. We could contrast his thinking here with Thomas Hobbes, who would certainly agree that we're born with the potential for bad. We could also contrast with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who would certainly agree that we are born with that potential for good. But Kant says that human beings are born with the potential for both good and bad, and we could go either way. Now, Kant does acknowledge, with Rousseau, that a great deal of evil comes out of civilization, rather than from our primitive nature. In fact, a lot of what we now consider bad was probably originally necessary for survival in our primitive conditions. Kant also argues that although we have an inborn moral sense, that moral law within, that must be developed by moral instruction. Now, for this reason, Kant believes that religion is necessary. Although he points out that religion shouldn't be dogmatic, and that beliefs such as original sin, or the divinity of Christ, or the efficacy of prayer, are merely superstitions. In 1795, Kant wrote On Perpetual Peace, outlining the basis for international law. In 1798, he came out with The Conflict of the Faculties, arguing for the importance of academic freedom. Immanuel Kant died on February 12, 1804, after a long illness, and was buried ceremoniously in the Konigsberg Castle. Over his grave is written this epitaph. The starry heavens above me, the moral law within me.
So what has been the influence of David Hume and Immanuel Kant on psychology? The great historian of psychology, Daniel Robinson, once said that today nearly every psychologist is either a Humean or a Kantian. Humeans see their science as the statistical analysis of a collection of experiences. All we can ever know are probabilities, based upon what happened in the past. Kantians see their science as a little more firmly based, in a sense in the structure of the mind. And yet they too can permit themselves little certainty. Humeans can be found among most experimentalists, including behaviorists. The Kantians are more likely to be found among the cognitivists, or the psychoanalysts. There are, as we shall see, some alternatives, but they remain very much in the minority. Thank <laughs> you.